Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke, and in this podcast series, I'll be sharing conversations with colleagues, exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas, and advice for your medical practice. In this podcast episode, we have a conversation about benign prostate hyperplasia, or BPH. This is an age-associated prostate gland enlargement that causes urination difficulty, including poor stream, hesitation, frequency, terminal dribbling, and nocturia, and may be associated with an increased risk of UTIs. About a third of men may experience moderate to severe symptoms by the age of 60, and about half by the age of 80. And BPH was once a frequent indication for transurethral resection of the prostate, or TURP. However, medications including alpha blockers, which relax splatonic muscles, 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, which induce volume reduction by blocking hormone changes, combination treatments and tadalafil have changed its approach. To provide us with a thumbnail sketch to these approaches, we're joined once more in conversation with the very expert and eloquent urologist, Mr. Dennis King. Dennis King, thank you very much for joining me in a second interview here on Everyday Medicine, um, which we want to focus on benign prostatic hypertrophy. And there are controversies there, Dennis. Mm. We talked about prostate cancer in the past. Um, this is another area where there's lots of controversies. Are we operating on BPH as much as we used to? Can you uh, t- tell us about that. So if you look at historically the management of BPH, um, in the 70s and the 80s, the only real management options were observation or surgery, the ubiquitous TURP. But with the development of medical therapy in the 90s, uh, we saw TURPs drop off quite precipitously in number. And so many, many more men are managed with medical therapy rather than a TURP. So the medical therapy really consists of three groups of medicines. Uh, There's the alpha blockers, so you might be familiar with the names of prazosin or minipres, or flamaxtra or tamsulosin. So these are really aimed at causing relaxation of the smooth musculature of the prostate and the bladder neck, as well as some central effects and improving symptoms. Um, There are the 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, uh, which basically are aimed at causing shrinkage of the prostate. Mm. And what you may know, Duodart, which is a combination of a relaxing agent and a shrinking agent. Are they effective in shrinking the the volume of the prostate? Yeah, by about 30%. That's very significant. However, it's quite interesting. When you look at that drug, most of the heavy lifting in terms of symptom improvement is carried by the tamsulosin. But Duodart as a medication certainly uh, is very effective at controlling symptoms, um, but also effective in reducing some of the long-term complications of BPH. So when you look at um, one of the common complications being acute urinary retention, particularly with large prostate, you will see a decreased instance um, of TURPs in the group of people who are taking uh, Duodart. Mm. The third group of medications you can use with some caution 
is the use of anticholinergic medications, which are such as uh, oxybutynin, mm. which mm. help to reduce those bladder storage symptoms like frequency and urgency. Mm. If, if you are undertaking a TURP, is incontinence a significant issue as mm. a complication of that operation? Um, so... In general, I would say it's infrequent. So when you look at a TURP operation, there are two forms of incontinence which can arise. There's this um, typical stress incontinence through uh, damage to the external sphincter. And in general, that will occur in about 1% of people. Usually will self-resolve within six months. And that's important to differentiate the TURP from the radical prostatectomy, which is where we're doing it for cancer, mm. and we're removing the whole prostate rather than boring out the prostate. So incont stress incontinence with radical prostatectomy, quite common for a limited time. Very uncommon, however, with the TURP. Uh, the other form of incontinence is urge incontinence, uh, which is usually due to overactivity uh, of the bladder. Uh, it's not uncommon for that to transiently deteriorate following a TURP, and you really have to counsel your patients about that. But usually it's relatively short-lived for about four to eight weeks, uh, and if it's an ongoing problem, can be managed with bladder retraining and anticholinergic medication. Is that that's the detrusor instability? Is that the same? Yes, the, tr the detrusor instability and overactive bladder. So how do you select your patient for an operation? Given we've got medications that are now very effective that have come on the market and have reduced the kind of the burden of surgery for urologists, how how do you decide that you're going to operate on someone with BPH? Mm. So I think at the end of the day, there are absolute indications and relative indications. The absolute indications are there are still be people who will be in acute urinary retention, and in that group, medication is unlikely to work for the long term. Right. There are people with chronic urinary retention where they have significantly elevated post-void residuals. Um, so these people are at risk of developing um, an underactive bladder or an atonic bladder. So those ideally would be operated on before they progress to that level. Mm. There's a small group of people where the obstruction to the, uh, from the prostate to the bladder can cause hydronephrosis and acute kidney mm. injury. And there are people who form bladder stones yes. um, and are, they're unlikely to be adequately treated with medication. Mm. And there's a last group of people with recurrent urinary tract infections due to poor bladder emptying. Mm. So those are kind of absolute indications. More relative indications um, are, would be people who have failed medical therapy um, and, you know, the response to medical therapy is very good. We will find response rates of 70 to 80%, but there is certainly a group who will tail off over time, mm. and after that, then they're looking at some type of uh, surgical procedure. So when we're talking about BPH, we're talking about prostomegaly, mm. growth of the prostate. This is something that happens in all men? Yes, the only at, at, Well, I was going to ask... Has anyone looked at ways of reducing the hypertrophy of the prostate? Mm. So, you know, is there some preventative method that one could take in one's 40s or 50s 
to 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 obviate the need for this. Mm. Uh, well, the only people it doesn't tend to occur histologically. So it occurs histologically in men past the age of forty and manifests usually in men over fifty. The only group it doesn't occur to are people who have been castrated. The unicorn, the, the castrati. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but because we don't do that to people to preserve their... So sopranos, yes. so boy sopranos, yes. used to... Um, the castration used to be an option yes. to maintain their beautiful voice, but of course we don't do that anymore. Um, Is there any way well, of preventing... Uh, the, the, the hypertrophy of prostate tissue that you're aware of or any research in that field? Mm, a little bit controversial. The short answer is nothing reliable in terms mm. of lifestyle factors. Mm. Uh, there are medications, um, in particular the 5-alpha reductase right. inhibitors causing shrinkage, preventing um, development of BPH. However, um, most people would be hesitant to recommend a medication to someone who is asymptomatic. And also there was some controversy initially with uh, 5-alpha reductase inhibitors in that they actually do reduce your incidence of prostate cancer by about 25%. But the interesting thing is that there were some early studies suggesting that although the incidence of prostate cancer is reduced, the actual incidence of high-risk prostate cancer mm. is disproportionately elevated. Right, so mm. right. reduces the indolent, which aren't an issue. And, and maybe increases the, aggressive. Um, the more aggressive one. But as a result, most of us will not use no. uh, medication in that for that reason. Right, right. I mean, people do use over-the-counter preparations. Mm. And, you know, if you go to your local chemist, yes. there's a whole host of... Medications such as prostate ease, and most most of the, these these rely on a number of uh, herbal extracts. The predominant uh, one, most common one, is saw palmetto, um, and this herbal extract perhaps has an efficacy. Difficult to get real data on it, mm. um, but I think about thirty to forty percent. But it is an ongoing um, preparation. And the other thing to think about is placebo responses mm. Mm. can range as high as 30%. Yes, that's incredible, isn't it, the placebo mm. response. Mm. Dennis, thank you again for taking the time to walk through that subject. That's thank a you, pleasure, Thank Luke. you very much. I enjoyed that thumbnail sketch through benign prostate hyperplasia with Dennis. We had uh, some very interesting discussions about urology generally before the interview, and it was uh, really nice of him to join me in that discussion. During the podcast series, we'll be covering a wide range of topics across many specialty interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only, and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and maybe email to manager at gihealth.com.au.